With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us this morning on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, we have reports from the National Farm Machinery Show. We also have a report from the Grains Council in Guatemala City, Guatemala, and from the Ag Outlook Forum in D.C. But we start today with Brian German, who was at the World Ag Expo last week. And we are here at the World Ag Expo 2024 at the Case IH booth. And who am I standing here with this morning? Uh, my name is Terry Zanella. I am the marketing manager for our Farmall line of tractors. And that is one thing that uh, you've noted is, is kind of a, a focus here. You've got quite a bit of equipment out here, but uh, that is what you just mentioned is kind of something you really want to highlight and, and let growers know about. So what's some of the important information about that? We are launching three new farm alls at this year's show. Uh, the first one is a brand new series for Case IH. It's the CL. Uh, this tractor has a wider rear axle, so it's able to drive over nut windrows without damaging the crop. It also has um, universal transmissions and an upgradable hydraulic system. So the producer can really tailor the speed and power to what they need. We also have a new configuration for our Farmall Utility A lineup. This offers uh, dealers the option for narrow rows in lower clearance. And then our last Farmall that we're introducing at the show is the 100A Pro Series. This is a new high capacity hitch for transplanters. And uh, with a name like Farmall, uh, I imagine it encompasses basically anything that you're growing, but where, where do you see a lot of interest from? What kind of growers seem to be most interested in these and, or maybe where they're most um, applied? Uh, each of these Farmalls has different features for different producers, but all specifically tailored for orchards, vineyards, and fruit and vegetable production. And uh, taking a look at some of these pieces of equipment, uh, the cab uh, looks f fairly luxurious, especially for being a tractor, and that's uh, kind of something you wanted to highlight there. For sure. Um, operator comfort is a key for us. The CL series has a really tall cab to help with the upward visibility, and then it can be upgraded to LED lights to make working at night a little easier for the producer. Yeah, especially if you're spending a lot of time in some of these machines, uh, that, that seems like it's uh, got quite a few benefits there as well. For sure, upgradable seat, um, ergonomic controls, and we do what we can to make things less, um, less fatigue for the operator. And we're continuing to make our way through the Case IH booth here at World Ag Expo. And uh, who have I got here talking to you this morning? Uh, this is Jay Barth. I'm the marketing manager for Steiger Tractors and also our compact tractor line. And that's what we are standing here in front of looks like. And so why don't you tell me a little bit about this equipment here and uh, maybe some of the functionality of it. So one of the nice things about compact tractors is they apply to a wide group of people and uh, ranging from professional farmers to uh, weekend hobbyists. So compact tractors, their uh, versatility is the key thing. The ability to go in and do just about any job you want them to. And what are uh, some of the key takeaways here of, uh, you know, where it might be best applied or functionality of it? I mean, it sounds like it's pretty universal, but, um, you know, what's it able to do here? So next to me, I've got the 25SC. That's our new subcompact model. It's about the size of a regular garden tractor, but it has a lot more capability. So this particular model has a loader. You can fit a mid-mount mower to it. 
and it can even have a backhoe on the back. So it can do just about any job you'd run into for a weekend warrior standpoint. And we're standing next to uh, another one as well. It looks like it's a little bit larger there, but uh, it looks like it's maybe got a little bit more capability behind it. Yeah, that's for like your smaller contractor or maybe a little bit larger farm operation where you're going to use it more on a daily basis. Um, it's, like you said, a lot more capable as far as weight from the front end loader. We're about double what this 25SC has. Uh, the backhoe is going to dig a lot deeper. You know, we're going to be going down about 10 feet. So um, we've got a lot more to offer for that particular group. So the nice thing about our tractor lineup is you can fit it into a variety of different applications. Pick the model that works for what you need. You don't have to overbuy or underbuy. You just pick the one that works. And in, in terms of uh, you know the functionality and where it could be uh, deployed, it seems like the, there's several different options here depending on if you're a, a large grower or a small grower. It seems like there's something here that can kind of fit your budget and fit your operation. Yeah, that's for sure. And if you go to the other end of the spectrum, we've got our 715 engine horsepower Steiger over there. So that tops out. That's uh, right now the largest four-wheel drive articulated tractor in the marketplace. So plenty of options to choose from. And uh, for anyone that's not able to make it to the farm show here, uh, where can people get some more information to learn about some of these options they've got? Well, two good sources. First is your local dealer. Go in and uh, they have a wealth of knowledge and probably have equipment on their lot to be able to show you. And then if that doesn't work, from the comfort of your chair at home, uh, caseih.com. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. In today's National Spotlight, the National Farm Machinery Show wrapped up over the weekend in Louisville, Kentucky. It's the largest indoor farm show in the U.S. C.J. Miller was there and shares a big new attraction from the event. C.J.? Big may not be the right word to describe this new Case IH AF11 combine, which is making its debut here at the National Farm Machinery Show. Leo Bowes is the harvest marketing lead with Case IH and details the power behind their huge new combine. We do have a C516 corn head hooked to this, so 16 rows, 30 inch row spacing. It all starts with that corn head for capacity, but it doesn't stop there. We go to the grain tank, 567 bushel grain tank capacity, unload that grain tank at over six bushels per second unload rate. And within 100 seconds, I can get that grain tank unloaded. So we don't stop there. That engine is 775 horsepower. So that power plant is really putting that power where we need it. How soon will Case IH's new AF11 combine be available through your local dealership? So later this summer, we'll actually have an order writing program that customers will be able to work with their local dealer and then we look at limited production for 2025. When it comes to the overall inventory of Case IH's new equipment and replacement parts, Bo says that their supply chain is back on track. For Case IH, that's pretty much I would say in our rear view mirror. Now as you look forward, there may be those hiccups here once in a while, but for us, we don't see that as an issue um, because our supply base is pretty broad when we look at who we're pulling in and who we're using. So for us, it really hasn't, I would say, it's leveled off from probably three to four years ago. From the National Farm Machinery Show in Louisville, I'm C.J. Miller. The U.S. Grains Council gathered in Guatemala City, Guatemala for the first day of the Council's 21st International Marketing Conference and the 64th Annual Membership Meeting Wednesday through Friday last week. 
USGC President and CEO Ryan Legrand says Guatemala is a great place to host the meeting. It's the leading uh, corn importer in Central America of U.S. corn, and about 85% of what they import is from the United States. We enjoy very good market share. Just a couple of years ago, they set a record with 1.3 million tons of corn imports from the United States, placing them in the top five of our total customers list. So it's a great place to be to highlight Guatemala and Central America as a whole. The grant presented to the group and talked about opportunities ahead. Especially when it comes to ethanol, we really believe that exports of bioethanol are poised for growth. Uh, There's just so many markets out there that we think are ready to start taking either their first gallons of ethanol or increase what they're already doing. We also talked about the Regional Agricultural Promotion Program, the new funding source coming from USDA that's just right around the corner. We've submitted proposals for, for that, and that will be a real shot in the arm in terms of the budget that we're receiving. Uh, it's going to change the size and scope of this organization and make our reach even further. And hopefully, well, the plan is to, to produce more results, more exports from that. Expansion and growth within the Grains Council, Legrand says, is vital for continuing the mission. If you look at the ROIs from MAP or the Market Access Program dollars, it's about 23 to 1. So the results are there. And since 2006, we have not had any increases in the funding that we get from the government. So that baseline was set at $200 million in 2006. And over time, through uh, sequestration and through inflation, and this isn't even counting the latest run-up in inflation, those dollars have been eroded to the tune of about 50%. And so it was sorely needed. So there has been a great uh, grassroots advocacy effort from farmers all over the country, just a steady drumbeat coming to Washington for the last couple of years, talking about the importance and the need for more MAP dollars. And that's finally coming, not through a farm bill like we'd like to see it, but it's coming through the Commodity Credit Corporation. And- that's U.S. Grains Council President and CEO Ryan Legrand. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's livestock news, the dairy industry is not immune to the basic economic principle of supply and demand. A good thing in this month's dairy prices forecast. USDA's Rod Bain has more on the positive shift in the dairy market. Stronger domestic dairy demand with a month-over-month lower adjustment in production means slightly tighter supplies. And as a result of all of this, product prices here in the U.S. are up. World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekodowski adds within USDA's dairy outlook. Cheese price we raised by 7 cents per pound. Butter price up by 11 cents per pound. Dry products as well, non-fat dry milk, dry whey, each raised about a nickel per pound. Translating also into higher milk class prices for February. So both our Class 3 price and our Class 4 price were raised this month. Class 3 was raised by a dollar per hundredweight, now at $17.10 per hundredweight. Class 4 was raised by 85 cents per hundredweight to $20.20 per hundredweight. And the all-milk price we raised this month by 95 cents per hundredweight, now forecast for 2024 at $20.95 per hundredweight. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. A look at February's broiler and turkey production and prices forecast with World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekinowski. 
Broilers production up a little bit this month, raised it by about 100 million pounds, just mainly reflecting higher bird weights. We've also seen some decent demand strength, some price strength from late last year that we've carried through into the new calendar year. So we raised our broiler price forecast by one and a half cents per pound, now at $1.27.3 cents per pound. That would be up 2.9 cents per pound year over year. Turkey, on the other hand, just really having some concerns there with turkey demand, low prices, also have some recent outbreaks of HPAI that had some lingering impacts on production. So turkey production, we reduced this month by 70 million pounds, but even with that decrease in production, prices still remain soft. We reduced our turkey price forecast by 3.3 cents per pound, and year over year, we're looking at almost a 33 cent per pound reduction in turkey prices. I'm Will Jordan for Agnet West. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service is still accepting applications for its conservation stewardship program. Assistant State Conservationist with NRCS Brandon Bates said that through CSP, producers are able to do both practices or enhancements. And each practice or enhancement has a practice lifespan, uh, and it just depends on what that practice may be. Whether if it's a putting in an actual structure for water conveyance or wherever that may be, you may see a practice lifespan, which also includes operation and maintenance, that could exceed 10 to 15 years. But again, that's dependent on the actual practice that you do. Some are our ergonomic practices, of course, only have to withstand one year. That's that one growing season and, of course, making sure that it did take, the practice did what it was supposed to do. And then, of course, that's the lifespan of that practice. So it just depends on what the practice or enhancement being installed. Cargill has introduced Reveal Layers, a non-invasive near-infrared technology to monitor the body condition of poultry, particularly laying hens. The first-of-its-kind innovation allows producers and nutritionists to assess body composition in real time, aiding in the optimization of diets to support long-term production and performance. Overdeveloped fat pads and hens can negatively impact egg production and liver function, prompting the development of Reveal Layers, which uses the light technology to measure the fat pads. The data obtained can inform adjustments to the diet, potentially reducing costs, enhancing profitability, and maximizing egg production. Cargill presented the technology at the recent 2024 International Production and Processing Expo, highlighting its contribution to sustainable and efficient poultry production amidst global food challenges. As farming businesses continue growing, it can require increasing flexibility and more planning for the future. Trust in estate attorney Polly Dobbs advises farmers and ranchers to consider looking outside their local areas to potentially transition to new advisors as a farming operation grows. As your business gets bigger, you need to level up the advice you're getting so that you're not making tax mistakes, you're getting all the benefits that are available. That is a, a downside of being successful is that you might have to go find a new advisor and they might be a couple hours away. But in this day and age of Zoom and phones and email, Geography is less important as far as, hey, are you three hours away or 30 minutes away? Just are you licensed in my state? Do you understand these issues? Do you know farming? And can you help me with planning? It's okay if you have to go out of town to get the advice you need. That's just the natural progression of success. The Sites Project Authority reported that storms this season could have provided a significant amount of water if the project was already operational. 
According to a new analysis, site's reservoir could have diverted and captured 1.2 million acre-feet of water in 2023 and 2024 to date. It's estimated that based on 2023 flows and significant storms this January and February, the reservoir would be at 80% of capacity today. Site's reservoir is designed to capture water from extreme storm events and could have safely diverted a portion of delta outflow while leaving enough natural flow for ecosystem needs. The analysis estimated that around 450,000 acre-feet of water could have been stored by mid-March 2024, with more potential for accumulation during the remaining wet season. An online vegetable production and integrated pest management workshop is coming up at the end of the month. The online webinar will take place beginning at 9 in the morning on Wednesday, February 28th. Some of the topics of discussion will include adopting the crop manage tool for desert lettuce irrigation and nitrogen management, tolerance assessment of onion salinity using high-resolution remote sensing, and managing soil health for vegetable production. Cooperative Extension Weed Specialist Steve Finnamore will also be providing an evaluation of automated weeders in vegetable crops. Other topics of discussion will include biological control and pest management, downy mildew diseases, microbiological risk assessments of biological soil amendments, along with industry updates from Syngenta and Corteva. More information on the workshop is available on the upcoming events page at agnetwest.com. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Rural America is making an economic comeback. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. Efforts by the administration to revitalize rural America are beginning to show results. That was the message Agriculture Secretary Tom Bilsack carried to Capitol Hill Wednesday, telling the House Ag Committee first... Our rural unemployment uh, rate is now at a lowest rate in 35 years. Our rural employment has returned to pre-pandemic levels. Helped along by new clean energy jobs, and Vilsack said on a larger scale... Rural poverty is down. And in fact, in 55 counties that historically were persistently poor are no longer in that category. Bilsack telling lawmakers that for decades, rural areas have been losing population. But now, according to census data, For the first time in 10 years, rural populations have grown. More people moving in than moving out. This is Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is the Agnet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Coffee and caffeine, how much is too much? That's probably less than I want to think. Gary Crawford has this report. Our subject today is coffee, which has been around for centuries and still inspires songwriters to write love songs to it, mostly very bad love songs. Ooh, and here's another one from someone obviously addicted to coffee. Got trouble sleeping, toss and turn from 5 a.m. I need a pick-me-up. Hook me up to the machine. My blood type is coffee. His blood type is coffee. That's an unsavory notion. Now, some people say that coffee's appeal is partly because of the taste of it, but also due to 1-3-7-trimethylxanthine. In other words, as the song said, It's caffeinated. It's 
decaffeinated caffeine, which brings up the question. Do you really need all that caffeine? Or all that coffee, for that matter. That's Karen Blakesley, Extension Food Scientist, Kansas State University. She says, though it's really hard to answer that question, there are so many variables involved with coffee, not just the caffeine part. Uh, Like most things, there are good and bad points about coffee. Karen says, according to the research. There are some potential benefits to drinking coffees, such as getting some polyphenols and antioxidants that are naturally in coffee. And indeed, studies show they could possibly protect against some chronic illnesses, like reducing risk for type 2 diabetes or heart disease or even some types of cancers. Ah, but on the other hand, with coffee... you got to be careful that you don't drink a whole lot of it because of the caffeine content. A little caffeine can help some people stay alert without doing any harm, but again... Too much caffeine can affect a whole range of other things, such as raising your blood pressure or giving you insomnia and you can't get to sleep at night or making you jittery or increasing your heart rate. A typical cup of coffee can contain about 100, maybe up to 200 milligrams of coffee. Now, the typical coffee drinker drinks about three cups a day. Dietary Guidelines for Americans talks about caffeine and it says healthy adults can safely take in about 400 milligrams of caffeine a day, so about four normal-sized cups of coffee per day. But also consider your own underlying health conditions that you might have. Do you have a heart condition where caffeine could increase your heart rate and that might not be a good thing for you? Also consider, she says, that coffee's no longer the sole source of caffeine for many Americans. Next time we're going to take a look at that, give you a way to see just how much caffeine you are actually consuming every day. The answer may keep you up at night. If it does, or if you need that coffee to keep you awake in the daytime. Maybe you need more sleep. Ah, good point. This is Fully Alert. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Brazil is the highlight of USDA's latest look at the world soybean production and balance sheets. Yet, latest numbers are also impacting parts of the U.S. bean ledger. Are also impacting parts of the U.S. bean ledger. Rod Bain reports. February USDA Global Soybean Outlooks usually focus their look at South American crops and production. In particular, this month, the focus is heavily on Brazil, where the crop is being harvested. Yet, as World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekinowski indicates, when it comes to Brazil and world bean supply and demand estimates, primary focus is on the previous marketing year, 2022-23. Based on the amount of exports and crush within Brazil, we believe last year's crop was larger than we had been forecasting. So we raised last year's crop by 2 million tons. It was record last time, but now it's even more of a record. Reflecting higher yield and more area. In the new crop year, we raised our area forecast for Brazil, but that was more than offset by lower yields, leading this month to a 1 million ton reduction in our production forecast. Despite the lower year-over-year bead production forecast, Jekinowski notes that export demand remains strong for Brazilian soybeans. Strong exports out of Brazil during the October to January period. We saw record exports from Brazil. That direct competition in the world market is seemingly having impacts on U.S. soybean exports. If USDA's February forecasts are any indication. So as a result, this month we reduced our U.S. 
soybean export forecast by 35 million bushels, now at just over 1.7 billion bushels. Year-over-year soybean exports, I mean, we're looking at a decline of about 272 million bushels. The adjustment of lower exports in the domestic bead balance sheet is then reflected in an increase in ending stocks for the 2023-24 marketing year. Ending stocks raised by the same amount, 35 million bushels, and we reduced our season average price forecast by 10 cents per bushel down to $12.65 per bushel. And that would be down a little bit more than $1.50 year over year. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Sales account manager for AgroLiquid, Dylan Rogers, joins us today to talk about their ongoing research work in almonds. So, you know, as ag evolves and here at AgroLiquid, we thought it was important to have research that was specific to different growing regions and different crops. Uh, we started almond trials about seven years ago, and the reasoning behind this, we wanted to introduce research data that was relevant to the permanent crop growers here in California. The trial now is in its seventh year. Uh, the goal of the trial is we're comparing the efficiency of agroliquid products against conventional products and other specialty type fertilizers that are gaining a stronger foothold in the almond industry. So these are all in the same region. Uh, the, there's been four years of the study that have been in the same block. So we just wanted to show, you know, year after year in a permanent crop, because a lot of times the permanent crops, you know, we're fertilizing next year's crop. So we wanted a good consistent chunk of data that's off of the same block and the same trees. Um, the past two years, the, the trial has moved. So we're in a new block and we're, we've switched up the program a little bit and we're on that same track. We're going to we're going to push for a few more years of data to get solid, uh, solid permanent crop data. It's important to stay in the same location. Um, after six years now of harvest data, we're seeing positive results with those lower use rates. Uh, we're able to maintain yields in line with the conventional products. Uh, sometimes it's not better yields, so uh, it's going well. This is the AgNet News Hour, and we will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Acnet News Hour. For today's featured interview, we go back to the USDA Agriculture Outlook Forum. May I please get your name and your title? My name is Wayne Connolly, and I'm a budget analyst for the FPAC Business Center. Okay, well tell me first what that is. Uh, well, the FPAC Business Center is a kind of a, um, uh, a service center that has uh, different types of uh, services that were individual to like FSA and RCS, and they kind of the overlapping uh, duties and responsibilities, they kind of brought them into one roof as a better way to service the, the customer, the farmer, the rancher. Yeah. So today we are out at the USDA Ag Outlook Forum, and you are at a history booth. So tell me what this is all about. Well, this actually came about last year when I came to the forum, and I was asking them, where is the history booth? Because I love history. Uh, and they didn't have one set up, and I said, I'd be happy to, and to do one for you next year, and especially to help commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Ag Outlook Forum. And so over the past couple of years, I've actually collected things on my own and kind of opened up a museum at the South Building in Agriculture. And so uh, just recently featured on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. It was all about the museum and how it kind of came about. So I've collected things over the years and now have a chance to display them. And now at the Ag Outlook Forum, have a chance to share with everybody else the things that I've learned, not only the, the pictures that are behind us, but just some of the things that have happened to over the years here and just kind of trying to preserve the history and preserve some of the things that are historical to the building. 
So you really found a way to connect all of these interests of yours with the history, with agriculture, bring it all together into something that can really serve the public. Yes, yes, exactly. In fact, it's ironic because the Wall Street Journal calls it the most exclusive museum in the U.S., and that's only because you know, we're, uh, the, we're the people's department. We're the only agency that sits on the mall, so we're trying to make it more access, accessible and more uh, in a more prominent space where people can actually come in and, and enjoy it. So uh, just kind of working, and, and hopefully the goal is to, to make that happen one day. So how long will this be on display? Uh, we, this was uh, just for the two-day display, but the items that I have here on display in the pictures are also in the South Building in some space that, uh, that we've used now to display historic things. I call it the museum. Uh, it's uh, kind of tucked away in the South Building, but uh, more and more people are coming by. And if I think over the past several months, I've had about 500 people come by. So is the plan to just keep it there? Well, it'd be ideally in a little bit more of a prominent uh, space in, in the building uh, where it's more accessible to, to people where they can actually find it. Because if, uh, if you're familiar with the, the South Building, the, the main building, you know, it's, uh, when it was built in the 30s, it was the largest building in the world, seven, seven miles of corridors. I mean, uh, the back side, front side, it's two city blocks long. So you can definitely get your steps in when you're in the building. But if you're not sure where it is, it's kind of hard to find. But as I meet people and, meet, and people are actually talking about it more, they're telling people, colleagues and stuff, hey, where, this is where you can find it. So now we're doing kind of like some, uh, some orientation, onboarding activities, uh, maybe some uh, team events that people are using it for now and doing some historical walking tours of the building itself. So just kind of making it available to as many people as possible. So what is, tell me about some of the things that um, you find to be the most interesting or maybe what are some of your favorite things that you have collected? Uh, I, I like the old agricultural yearbooks, the historical pieces. I think my oldest book that I've actually collected is from 1843. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of stories and displays uh, in, the, in the museum. Uh, one of my favorite ones is I, uh, on loan from the secretary's office, is a 1909 championship baseball trophy. Uh, that uh, Back in the day, we probably had about 44 different social sporting groups. And in fact, the first... Uh, ones probably came on uh, around the late 19th century. We had baseball teams, football teams. Uh, the baseball team was very prolific. In fact, there's a story about Noodles Hahn, who was a famous baseball pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds. In fact, he's in the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame. But he knew back in the turn of the century, around 1906, he put himself through veterinary school, became a surgeon, and he knew one day his arm would fail him, and so he became a meat inspector for USDA. Yeah, and the funny thing about that is that our amateur baseball team tried to recruit him to come to D.C. to play for their team, but he would never want to leave Cincinnati because he would throw batting practice for every Cincinnati Reds home game until he's about 70 years old. So that's a neat little story that's in the museum. Um, talk about the George Washington Carver, the, the Jessup Ag Wagon. So I have what's left of the Jessup Ag Wagon on display in the museum. Uh, that's a nice little story about how he created the wagon how the first black extension agent, Campbell, was the driver of that wagon. Uh, and they would go out there trying to reach the farmers that were forgotten or left behind uh, after 1906 when the wagon was, uh, was developed. And I found that little piece of wood that was left at the uh, George Washington Carver Center. There's a nice little replica or an actual size replica of the George Washington Carver Center in the lobby there. And that's where I learned about there's nothing left of the original 1906 wagon came across this piece of wood and they graciously let me uh, display it in the museum. In fact, I've been working with uh, 
uh, jazz musician James Brandon Lewis for, to have him come and perform at an event at USDA because he developed uh, this album and it's a concept album and it's all about the Jessup Wagon and George Washington Carver and I thought that's kind of a neat thing to tie in so I actually reached out to him he didn't think I was real but yeah no it's like I took a picture and sent it to him and he, and he loved it and he thought it'd be a great opportunity to come one day to perform you know for the employees at, at agriculture and talk about the album and how it came about and how his relation to the, the wagon and George Washington Carver. So I thought, you know, that's a nice little story. So it's, I have little stories like that throughout the museum. And so when people come and visit, I, I love to talk about these stories and share it with people. And then they go out and share with other people and get more interest and people come back and, and check it out. That is amazing. I'm so glad that I stopped here at the booth and, and chatted with you. Um, for people who are listening to this, you know, like I said, we have our Cal um, listeners out in California who maybe can't make it in is there anything online that they can go and see or is there a way that they can learn more about the museum um, online before they come and visit uh, not yet so one of the things that we're working on is a historical society so we're doing some signups right now so for example I'm reaching out to some authors of agricultural books or some period pieces of history and they're uh, actually going to come in and do some talks about some of the things that they uh, have learned so for example uh, Aunt Sammy's Radio Recipes was a, a program back in the 20s. In fact, the first uh, airing was in the August, no, October 1926. And Aunt Sammy wasn't just one person. It was actually three women who worked for the Bureau of Home Economics. In fact, at that time in the 20s, USA employed more female scientists than anywhere else in the country. So that's something that we share. But I actually reached out to uh, a professor who actually wrote... Uh, a book about Aunt Sammy and the radio recipes, professor from uh, Penn State, Justin Nordstrom, uh, who actually wants to come down, kind of tour the museum, and actually do a little bit of a talk on his book and Aunt Sammy and the radio recipes. So, uh, but yeah, we're trying to get the word out that way, but through the historical society, and hopefully, we'll have a, uh, a media presence out there somewhere that where people can learn. And I've done some virtual things for groups within USDA who people who are working remotely or, 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 you know, different California. So we'll do some, uh, some virtual stuff where uh, they can actually see the museum through the presentation that I might do online. Yeah, yeah. But it's been a lot of fun. And we're just trying to get the word out there, just trying to save as much history as possible and share what we find. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being out here. And, you know, and thank you for doing this whole project. I am also a bit of a history, uh, yeah, history buff, history nerd, however you want to say it, but yeah, I, I think it's fast, fantastic that you're doing this. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's just, it's been a labor of love, and if you uh, read the article in the Wall Street Journal, uh, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, I, I wish I could do it uh, for many, many years, and uh, I'm just hoping that uh, it continues on, even if I'm gone. I could have retired some years, some years back, but having too much fun right now. All right, well, thank you again. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. For more news now, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack told Congress that agricultural producers are going to face, quote, chaos in the marketplace if Congress does not address the impact of the U.S. Supreme Court ruling over California's Proposition 12. Representative Glenn G.T. Thompson, a Republican from Pennsylvania and chairman of the committee, asked Secretary Vilsack about the economic harm of Proposition 12 going into effect, pointing to a USDA study showing prices for certain pork products have risen as much as 41 percent. Uh, the reality is this, that when each state has the ability to define for itself and for its consumers exactly what farming techniques or practices uh, are appropriate, it does create the possibility of 50 different sets of rules and regulations. 
uh, which obviously creates serious concerns for producers because they have no stability and they have no certainty. Uh, I'm not sure that this Congress uh, is going to be able to pass legislation um, with due respect, uh, but I would suggest that if we don't take this thing, uh, this issue seriously, we're going to have chaos in the marketplace uh, because there's nothing preventing any state from doing what California did. Now, why did the Supreme Court decide what they decided? They decided it because they they believed that each and every producer had its had their own uh, choice to participate in this market. Uh, they basically said it didn't uh, violate the Commerce Clause because it didn't discriminate against any particular producer. Well, the problem, I think, is that it didn't anticipate the, uh, the, uh, the impact of 12% of the market changing the rules on the entire market. And I think that there's, there's a risk of that occurring uh, all across the country. Uh, having said that, it is a little bit difficult, however, to, to create consistency within this Congress and within this country on this issue of states' rights. Because if you apply this standard, then you're going to have to, to discuss some of the more difficult issues, social issues, guns, abortion, et cetera. So I don't envy the Congress trying to figure this out. Uh, I will tell you, though, that if it doesn't figure it out, there's going to be chaos. While Vilsack advocated for Congress to change the law, more than 180 House members last fall joined a letter opposing a bill that would nullify Proposition 12. That's today's Top Agriculture News. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.